your schedule may feel a little bit too full. And so coming this morning is a direct act of saying, God, you're important. And this Christmas, I don't want to miss you. And so as we give, I just want you to keep that in mind this morning. Something I think is interesting is that every time we gather, we bring a whole bunch of our week into our gathering. I don't know what you, but as Leah mentioned, I've got a lot of checkout lines that I've been in this past week. I don't know if it's Christmas shopping or maybe just specific Christmas parties I've got to get food and I've got to get stuff together for. I don't know about you, but every time I'm in when I see one of these little items, it is a checkout lane divider. That's the official terminology. How many of you use these on a regular basis? You're like, don't touch my stuff. I want to make sure my stuff is separate from yours. Don't you dare buy my groceries. Well, it's funny. Over this last week, I've kind of rediscovered uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan or not. Don't know where you fall on the spectrum of comedy. He's funny. If you don't think he's funny, maybe you're not funny. Maybe you're the problem. Uh, but I was watching Seinfeld this last week, and I think it's so interesting because Seinfeld, if you know him, his style of humor it's definitely leaning towards like making fun or poking fun at things that we think are pretty normal, like ordinary average things. So Jerry Seinfeld actually has a bit, maybe you've seen it, about checkout check lane dividers. Now, I'm not going to attempt to imitate Seinfeld. That would be about as funny as talking about a hamster's funeral. Uh, but see, I just proved my point. Like I should stick to the script here. I thought that was funny. Uh, but Seinfeld is funny, and so his bit is funny, but his whole point is like, how, how weird is it? And, and who is the first guy, really, who came up with the checkout lane divider idea? I mean, think about it. All these ideas originate with somebody back in history. Now, what was the scene of that moment? Like, the person's orange rolling into my wheat, like my wheat cereal. I'm like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no oranges in my area. Like, get it out. Or, you buy the, or they bought the gift card. And they're like, I cannot let this card get wrinkled or crumpled in any way. So I'm going to put these rubber dividers here. That would be brilliant. Someone should come up with that. And then they started adding advertising. So it's like, not only do I go to buy things, but I'm encouraged as I'm buying things to what? Buy more things. It's like, how is that even possible? But advertising has its way. I just think it's so funny. And it's something particular about human nature. And as I was watching and laughing at Jerry Seinfeld talking about this, I was like, I totally do that. Like I totally set out like a huge buffer. Like I want my milk and eggs to have some buffer. Like I want them to have a little property when they're going through my checkout lane. Like I want to have some space. I just think it's humorous that human nature wants to make sure that our things are properly divided. Like we don't want other people's stuff spilling into ours or ours spilling into theirs. And, and as a pastor, I often think about life in kind of metaphorical ways. And so I sat there listening to Jerry Seinfeld, thinking about my experience at Meyer, which I've been there like 8.9 times in the past weekend, like just seemed to always end up at, at Meyer, even if I think I get everything and back there later that day. Uh, and so I was sitting in the checkout lane thinking about this. And I often think that our lives do that kind of same thing as the rubber checkout lane dividers do. We seek to divide and make sure our life is safe and organized and maybe even compartmentalized from other people. We want to make sure our life is somewhat clean and tidy and put together. Now, some of you like chaos, but I'm not one of those people. I like things to be organized and, and proactive and thought out and planned and strategic. And so checkout lane dividers are like a godsend to me. 
But I thought about my life in, over the past six months and realized I've thought about some of the things that I've encountered. I've encountered issues with, our, with money, and we've had conversations in our marriage about how to spend money or where's it going or, or maybe this last election cycle as we vote on local and government officials and we're wrestling through hard decisions about where do we land and, okay, this person I thought I was going to vote for, but then I found out this and I don't know if I can still vote for them. So I'm going to vote for this person I don't love, but all those decisions. Maybe you even, like I did, face some moral or ethical decisions. And you came to a point in your life in which you had to make some decisions that could lean towards being unethical or lean towards being ethical. I thought about all those things. And almost every one of those decisions, it would have really annoyed me if someone else's life had kind of interfered with those decisions in my own. And so I put up these kind of mental dividers, these checkout lane dividers, if you will. Uh, when it came to those political decisions, I'm like, hey, you do yours, I'll do mine. Don't talk to me, don't try to influence me, I'm right in here. When it came to my money, it would have been offensive probably to me if someone came up and was like, hey, I heard you and Lindsay are thinking about spending money this way, but you really should spend money this way. I'd be like, hey, man, stay in your lane, all right? Like, get your, I've got my divider out, I'm gonna lay it down here, and this is my life. Don't let your life interfere with my life, okay? Moral and ethical decisions, like some of those things that are sort of gray, but there are probably a black and white in there somewhere. If people had come up to me and said, hey, I just want to give you some wisdom or some advice, I'd be like, hey, I appreciate that, and I want that, but only if I ask for it. And I want to make sure that there's a clear divider. I want to withhold that part of my life from other people. The scary thing is, I, maybe like you, if you follow Jesus in this room, are tempted not that we always do, but we're tempted to withhold our lives when it comes to our faith from others, is that there's a part of us, and I don't know if we could even pinpoint exactly why it is, but when it comes to our faith, it's incredibly private. Now, faith should be personal, yes. It should influence every part of you, but faith doesn't necessarily need to be private, something you keep and withhold from other people or making sure that your life and their life don't interfere. Now, I know this is true because when it comes to Christmas and we talk about the good news of Christmas being Jesus, our Savior, born into this earth, and we think about the implications of that for our own spiritual journey, it's often tempting for us, even at Christmas, the most wonderful time of the year. It's tempting to withhold the good news from other people. Here's why I think that is. We identify so closely with a guy named Simeon. Simeon gives us clues in our own human nature. And if you look at the scriptures, you see that character after character are really just lenses in which we see ourselves. Not just stories about people thousands of years ago living in a weird place and riding donkeys and camels. No, no, no. They're actually images of our life. And the more we dig into them, the more we see ourselves in the story. And so I'm going to invite you, if you have the scriptures, or even if you have a cell phone, you just want to Google Luke 2, and we're going to look in verse 25. Here's what we read about this guy, Simeon, who in the scriptures is painted as parallel to a guy we talked about a few weeks ago, Zachariah. Zachariah, guy in his, roughly in his 90s, doesn't have any kids yet, but is extremely devout. He's devoted. He's waiting for Jesus to show up, waiting for when. That's his when, is when Jesus, the Messiah, will show up. He's been waiting. And Zachariah and Simeon in Luke 2 are painted as almost the exact same person, they both have wives who interact in the Christmas story. But here's what we read about Simeon, starting in verse 25 in Luke 2. 
Now there's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Again, that's the Messiah coming. They're waiting for that. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother, that's Mary and Joseph, marveled at what was said about him. There's a couple clues. If we're reading the scriptures and looking for Jesus, looking for something to see ourselves in, there's a couple things I think that are interesting about Simeon in the story. Maybe you caught it, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've read the story a, a ton of times. And maybe your family gathers around reading Luke 1 and 2 every Christmas. Or maybe you're not familiar with the scriptures at all. And this name and these words and phrases mean nothing to you. But look in verse 25. And then in verse 26. And then again in verse 27. We see this common thread. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. Simeon's life had the authority, the actual measure of the Holy Spirit on him, this authority carried by God's own presence known as the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, what do we see again? It had been revealed to him by the who? The Holy Spirit. The second time, he's got the Holy Spirit on him or indwelling in him, and then something is revealed by the Holy Spirit. He actually has a word from God. He gets a moment of clarity. Then in verse 27, something else happens. Moved by the Spirit, like he's moved again. So not only is the Holy Spirit on him and he's getting revelation from the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit actually leads him somewhere. He takes him to a place, a specific physical location. He drives him to a place much like he did Jesus in the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Here, Simeon is led by the Spirit into the temple Chords. Here's why that's interesting. And I'm sure you are read up really well on your first century Israel temple history. And so I'm just going to refresh your memory for one moment here uh, when it comes to the temple. I want to show you kind of a brief picture. And we're not going to go through all of this, and I'm not going to give you like a spiritual history lesson. But uh, for scale, you can see up in the top corner, it's American football field versus the temple i.e. this place is massive, okay? Like this is a huge place. And there's all sorts of these priests, courtyard, and there's gates, and there's tables, and there's chambers, and there's all these different things. If you look at it, there's actually names of people groups. So you would see Gentiles, priests, Israelites, lepers, Gentiles, again, like you see them on the outside, Nazarites, women, all these different separations really within the temple. And the temple served not just as a good place for like, Christian people to go or, or for people who love God to go and worship and kind of give their sacrifices over. The temple was the center of the culture. This is where the, the deals happen. This is where people get to, get to learn kind of what's happening uh, in the spiritual climate of their area. This is where people learn like who's having kids, who's getting married. Like all of that is happening in the temple, specifically in these courtyards. And this scene that we read is right here in the women's courtyard. You can kind of see that front area. So you go through the gate, front area would be called the women's courtyard. It's accessible to mostly everyone who is a Jew. 
for the most part, if you're an insider, you're in. Like you're in the women's courtyard, you can hang out. And as you kind of go through more specific roles, we'll get, grant you access to further into the temple. Now, why am I telling you all that? Slash, why should you care? It's Christmas, December 13th, December 16th, rather. That was a couple days ago. December 16th, and you're looking at this map. Here's why that's significant. When it comes to Simeon, when it comes to first century Israel, when it comes to the writer of Luke and the audience he's writing to, the temple served primarily to perpetuate distinctions and divisions between people. This was ordained by God back in the Old Testament to serve as a way to set apart Israel, to set apart his chosen people from everyone else. And you can see on the outside, some of these chambers and areas actually are within the temple courts. But who's on the outside? The people you read about are in these Gentile courtyards. If you kind of took like a, if you had a drawing of what this really looked like, it would look kind of like a rickety goat fence. And the Gentiles have this courtyard. It's dirty. It's not esteemed. It's not even within the actual temple facility. It's not even in the building. It's just out there. And so they, were, they had a place, but it really wasn't a place of dignity or certainly a place to which they're on the inside. Read with me then the revelation that Simeon has from God. Verse 29, sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Code word for I can die now. I'm good. Like that's literally what he's saying. I'm good. I've seen what I need to see. You can dismiss me in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. Remember what he's holding, a young infant, Jesus, who'd recently been born. He's laying in his hands for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. He doesn't just say Israel. Doesn't even just say to Jewish people, he says all nations. But then what does he say next? A light for revelation to the who? Gentiles. Remember that scene. Who's on the outside? Who's in the rickety goat fence that doesn't get to go in and play with the with the insiders? The Gentiles. They're on the outside. They were not God's chosen people. They screwed up too many times. They're pagans, they're heathens, and we're gonna kind of give them like a consolation prize by making this little courtyard outside with some wood. That's what they get. But Simeon has a revelation. It says from the Holy Spirit, God's own voice, that, there are go- that he's going to be a light. This young Messiah is going to be a light to all nations, specifically to the Gentiles. See, Simeon was getting a revelation of what back in Genesis 12, Abraham once had that they failed. Abraham had a, rev- a revelation. He's talking to God. It's, it's deep in the night. And God says, I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. I'm going to multiply your kids all over the earth and you will bless even the Gentiles, the people outside of my blessing, outside of being the chosen people, people that are not on the inside of what I've been doing in this covenant. And then Israel fails again and again and again and again and again and again. They just get more inside, more exclusive when they talk about other nations and other groups. And Simeon's getting a revelation that where Israel failed, Jesus would succeed, that he would become a light to all nations, that he would become a voice of good news to the outsider. And he's holding Jesus. And how ironic, and maybe you have already caught this in the story, how ironic, often I'm tempted, even while holding Jesus in my heart, even while having a real and growing relationship with Jesus, that I'm tempted to withhold him from other people. Even when it comes to Christmas, 
Again, the most like spiritual time of the year. People are talking about it. You're either debating whether or not you should say Christmas or you're over that and you just say Merry Christmas. Like wherever you're at in the spectrum, you're thinking about Christmas, this holiday that we celebrate God's child being brought to the earth and, and history being rewritten. And I think about that and I think about how often I withhold the good news from other people. Again, maybe not intentionally, but I just do it. Like it's a very private part of my life, but that never was really the intention. And when I look at it even more deeply, we see Simeon understands this and maybe you understand this, but I had to learn to understand that often I withhold the good news, which in essence means that I'm picking and choosing what part of the Bible I like. I like the part where it says I'm chosen, I'm, I'm loved, and God is for me. But then it's like, but I'm supposed to be a light to people who are not like me, to my enemies, to the outsiders. I don't like that as much. That takes a little bit too much of my personal time, my energy, my money. It, it causes me to look outside of myself. St. Augustine said this, and I think it points to what Simeon understands that often we miss. If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you do not like, maybe it's not the gospel you believe by yourself. Zing. <laughs> like, ouch. But here's what I think he's saying. When we say, yes, I love that the good news of Christmas is for me. I love that Jesus wants to change and, and just transform my life. But there's definitely people in my life he doesn't want to do that for. Uh, my boss, don't think so. My employer, eh, even worse. Like my, my coworker, definitely not. Like my weird uncle, for sure not. Like there's all these people. You think about your Christmas life, you think about the next couple of weeks, we just automatically put people in, insiders, outsiders, chosen, definitely unchosen. Like you look at all these different people groups and we put dividers up all the time. We just separate who God wants to bring the good news to. Here's what I think Augustine and Simeon and I think Jesus is saying to us. The good news is not good unless it is good for everyone. The good news is not good unless it is good for everyone. Now that challenges most of what I grew up believing. That, that's an affront to what most people in our culture understand when it comes to Christmas. It's like Christmas, great if you're on the inside, even just a nice holiday, even if you don't care about religion or faith or any of that, but no one really believes at the very core. And I think most people wrestle with, is the good news really for everybody? Even the people I don't like, even my enemies, even the people who have so deeply wronged me, I just can't even get to the place of forgiveness. Is it for them? And Simeon's wrestling with this fact as he's holding Jesus in his hands. He's holding the Messiah. He gets this revelation from the Holy Spirit that, yes, it's the good news for everyone. And remember, Luke is not writing in kind of a cushy, perfect environment, which everyone is okay if you follow Jesus, and no one cares if you're not. He's writing this in first century Israel, Rome. Herod, King Herod of Judea, Luke 1, he points out who this guy is. He is depicted in all art as just being a nasty, almost demonic-looking figure, He's not a nice guy. The guy had eight wives, killed most of them, got rid of most of his kids, was incredibly greedy, frantic, and carried around 2,000 bodyguards just because he was paranoid. This guy is not in a good place, and he was not a friend to people who were trying to follow 
God. Luke is writing this to people who understand that there's oppression and persecution from guys like Herod. And yet, Simeon gets a revelation that, that God was going to bring good news, not just to Jews, not just to Israel itself, not even just to Gentiles, but all nations. Does that include Herod? I think so. I think it does. I think that, yes, God has standards of justice, but often we withhold the good news because we decide, we put up our own dividers and decide who's in and who's out. Mary and Joseph were amazed at what Simeon had heard and understood from the Holy Spirit. Look with me in verse 33. Here's how we read the very end of what we read. The child's father and mother, talking about Mary and Joseph, sitting in the courts, watching Simeon kind of sing this song of praise and revelation from the Holy Spirit. It says that they marveled. It's the same word for amazed. When's the last time you marveled at something? When's the last time you were amazed by something? They were amazed. That word again and again is used in Luke's gospel. Anytime someone gets physically, miraculously healed, Luke puts that word in there. They were amazed. They marveled. It's the same idea back and forth. And Jesus would again and again throughout the, the gospel story, again and again throughout Luke's gospel, welcomes, heals, embraces, invites in the outsider. Luke is not concerned with the Jewish people. His gospel is focused on people who in that first century Israel society would have been outcasts, women, the poor, children, marginalized, the immigrant. He's looking at those people and saying, yeah, Jesus is good news to them too. Jesus is good news to the enemy. Jesus is good news to people like Herod who are persecuting Christians for decades on and decades previous. He welcomes them. Jesus himself is good news to everyone. And the good news isn't good unless it's good for everyone, for any person, no matter where they fall. Here's what this broke down for me. Uh, July, August. I would say not probably as, as intense as holding Simeon, as Simeon holding Jesus, but I had an encounter with God that really changed me. I look back over the summer and I went away for a couple weeks to study and prepare for this upcoming year to, to write sermons and all the kind of pastoral things I get to do, which I love. And I went away to do all that. But I came back having kind of a revelation similar to what Simeon had, a revelation that my life, intellectually, I said, yes, the good news is for everybody. Yes, I believe that, that no matter who you are, that Jesus loves you and cares about you, yet my calendar didn't reflect any of that. That there were significant portions in my life in which I was simply focused on my own spiritual walk or people who were already Christians. I was just focused on that, but my life didn't reflect that I really believe that good news for, for everybody, not just at Christmas, but my entire life. So some things had to change. I came back and I don't know what calendar you use. Maybe you use a digital calendar. Maybe you use a paper calendar. Maybe you don't use anyone at all. And that's crazy. I don't know. Maybe that's the one thing you take away. Like start using one that will help you and your friends. They'll love you more. I promise. But whatever you use to schedule your life, I looked at that and I said, where are there sections of my day in which I'm thinking and actively pursuing people who maybe are far from God? who don't yet know that Jesus loves them enough to die for them so that they could have a new life. Who doesn't know that? And so I started to change a couple things. Now, I unashamedly love Chipotle. I, I've never skirted around that. I'm totally honest and vulnerable. I love it. Great burrito. Had it last night. Very excited <laughs> about the next time I will have it. 
So anyway, but I, I always went, I went there regularly, probably once, twice a week, but it was never intentional. I didn't ask questions. I got my burrito and I sat down, ate it in like 5.7 minutes, and then I left. Like there was just, I was all business. So what's funny about that is as I came back and I looked at my calendar and said, okay, if the good news is for everyone, what does that mean for how I spend my time, especially even around meals? So I came back and said, I'm going to go every Thursday at 1230 to the same Chipotle for the next six months. Now that may sound like horrible to you if you're a Qdoba fan, but if you're a Chipotle fan, you're like, let me in. Like that's, that's good stuff. Like what else you got? So anyway, I did that. And what I found when I did that is that I had conversation after conversation. People let me into their life. It was the same workers for the most part every single Thursday. And I started to be able to share what's going on in my life as well as hear what's going on in their life. And I'm not here to say, and I led them all to Christ and they're all going to be here at Christmas. And the entire franchise is now a Christian organization. Like <laughs> that would be awesome. That would be awesome. They're not quite Chick-fil-A yet, but it would be awesome. Here's what I think is unique about that though. Here's what's special about that is that week after week, God was using me to bring and be a bearer of good news. All I changed was my calendar. All I changed was my sensitivity to how is God working? Is, does this worker look tired? Do they look like they're hurting? Do, they, do I sense that maybe there's something wrong with them? And am I willing enough to ask, hey, how's your day? Good. No, but like, how is it? Like, how has it been? How's the last week been? I know you mentioned this, but like, how's that going? I started to follow up. Friends, I was not always that way. So I'm not a super elite Christian. I'm telling you out of the own like messed up version of how I'm trying to do this in my own life. But started to do that. And just week after week building relationships. It can be that simple. The same thing. I like to run. And so Monday nights, I decided, hey, there's no real running group for people in our community. I'm going to start something. So started a Facebook group called Byron Runners, about 30 or 40 of us in that group. And every week, a couple of us gather. And some of those people that gather, I know, don't have a real and deep relationship with Jesus. And I want them to. I desire that for them. I want them to know that I love them enough to show up every week, not just to get a run in, but also to say, hey, you mentioned your aunt has cancer. How is that? Are you willing, can I pray for you? Maybe you don't pray, but like, can I pray for you right here? Not during the run, but like after. <laughs> but I started to look at those things and now it, all it did was take a couple shifts in my calendar and it forces my Western grew up in church brain to think differently about the good news, to recognize that the good news is for everyone. Something in my calendar had to change I was not going to make that move on my own. And that may be true for you as well. But here's the challenge this week. Here's what I think as I look ahead to Christmas, what would really make the difference? Every one of you, and I've got a, a pile here if you don't, every one of you has one of these, or at least someone nearby. If not, there's extras up here. As you think about this, and maybe you've already taken one home, maybe you gave it to somebody, maybe it's on your fridge and you're waiting for that right moment to give it away. Here's what I think is important. This right here is a testament, not just to the people you give it to, but to yourself, that the good news is for everyone. That it's not just for the insider. Christmas would be great if it was just all of us gathered together and everything's good and cozy and we all love each other. I know that. But what would make it significant eternally was that people who maybe don't yet have a full and growing relationship with Christ would show up as well because you invited them. 
you know, and you've been around church for any amount of time, you know that Christmas is the most receptive and open time throughout the whole year for people who are far from God to show up to church with you. Higher than any other time. Higher than Easter. Because people are thinking about it. And so maybe there's a person in your life, you're like, oh man, I would love for them to be here. I just, I want them to know the good news is for them. Take this card. Invite someone to Christmas. Don't show up alone. I want to close with this. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was on Facebook and saw that the Museum of the Bible, which is in Washington, D.C., posts a a lot of cool pictures and artifacts from their their history museum that's located in the nation's capital, which is a cool thing on its own. But as I looked at that, they posted a picture that kind of struck me. And I was like, I didn't even know that this existed. Maybe you have seen this before. It's something that was created in the early 1800s called the Slave Bible. And I was intrigued immediately. I was like, what? I've never even heard of this. So I clicked on the picture and started to read the article below. In the early 1800s, when the British went to colonize places like Western Africa or India or places that had just been kind of native only, and they wanted to bring culture and enterprise and trade routes and ultimately dominate these cultural areas, they did something. They did something incredibly evil and incredibly wrong. They took the scriptures and they ripped out about 90% of the Old Testament and about 50% of the New Testament and simply created a narrative in the scriptures that promoted and confirmed that God endorsed slavery. So they took passages in the Old Testament that talked about people being enslaved and then they'd cut out the whole middle and talk about where they had a good experience at the end. We know that God had redeemed and set those people free. Stories like Joseph. Or he'd been enslaved, and at the other end, God worked it for his good. And so they bring this, this Bible into these cultural areas in which they could enslave people, hold them captive. They took the parts of the gospel, the good news that they liked and would serve them. And they left out everything else where Jesus talked about people being set free and released for the captives. And in Isaiah 61 prophecy that when Jesus would come as the Messiah, he would set the nations free. And I look at that, and I think, man, how could someone ever do that? And then I look at my own life. I look at areas in which I withhold the good news from people, and it's almost the exact same thing. That there are passage after passage of Jesus living a life that invited questions, that invited outsiders, that invited people that society was like, whoa, I don't think you should invite them to church. Like, what would people say? How would they feel? Would they reject me as a friend? Like, what's their experience going to be? And we just don't invite them or withhold the good news from them. I think about my own life, and yet the opportunity would be not to live that way, but to live a life that would proclaim the good news to everyone, no matter where you're at, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, that Jesus loves you and cares for you enough that he would die for you just so you could be set free. So your life would have purpose and meaning and fulfillment that you cannot find in a job, in a marriage, in, in, a, in a house, in a, in a place, like none of that. Not even in a church itself. Only that you can find in him. And then I think about this card. What redemptive potential could this card hold for you and your friends this Christmas? Your family this Christmas? Your coworker this Christmas? your babysitter this Christmas, your fellow student or your teacher 
this Christmas. I want all of us, um, if you have one nearby, don't worry if you don't, if you have one nearby, just to take this. Over this next song, I'm gonna invite us actually, and we don't do this often, so don't feel weird or feel like you have to do it, uh, but to come forward because likely there are names or people, yes, Lord, there are names or people on your heart that need to be prayed for, that maybe are one prayer away from actually saying yes to an invitation. And so, that being said, during this next song, I'm gonna pray real quick and they're gonna lead us, but I'm gonna invite you to come up. There's two stacks on either side. If you don't have a card in near your seat or nearby, uh, to, to grab one and actually to, to come up to the front of this stage and to pray. Maybe this person's name comes immediately. Maybe God lays someone on your heart, but just to pray, God, give me boldness, give me courage, give me the wherewithal to step out and say, hey, I, I love you. This may feel weird. I really want you to be at Christmas with me this weekend. Maybe you have to adjust your own plans so that they can come. Would it be worth it to you? Is the good news really good unless it's good for everyone? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you. If you got a card, you can come up here. You can pray in your seat. I'm going to invite you to come up here, though, because our physical posture just changed something about how we pray. It does. And so I'm going to invite you to come up here. If you need a card, there's stacks. But let's pray together and ask God, would you move through this simple card? God, we love you. We thank you for the power of an invitation. We thank you that in our lives, we, before you, were outsiders, undeserving of grace, rebellious, far from you, and yet you came near. If Christmas is anything, it's a reminder that the good news is not just for other people, but it's for us. And so God, as we pray, as we lift up names and people that are dear to us, we ask that you give us boldness, courage, grace to invite them and to see their lives be changed by you. We love you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand in this time. As we go into this next song, if God's stirring a name or a person or a whole family on your heart to come up, to lift up this card, just maybe even to hold it out open hand and say, God, use me however you want to use me this Christmas as we invite people into the good news and the Christmas story. Let's work.